We now continue with authority, headship, and family structure according to Moses. I am your author, Peter G. Rambo, and this is the second installment in podcast format uh, so that you can enjoy this book on audio. Uh, It is available, uh, I guess, at Amazon.com, both in Kindle and in print versions. And this second segment begins with uh, Noah or Noah, as we say in the English, opposed to the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew would be Noah. Um, and this covers Genesis chapters 6, 10 through eleven thirty-two. In our last portion, we saw God give commands to Adam that he was responsible to keep and teach to his woman. With the simple beginning that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations, Noah walked with God, we see several parallels with Adam. Adam was created righteous, perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. Like Adam, Noah is given very specific instructions. He's told to build an ark and is clearly instructed in how to do it and with what materials. The point repeated in the next portion, Lech Lecha, and many more afterward, is that God works within his established authority structure. It is with very rare exception that God deals directly with a woman. Over and over throughout Scripture, we see God speaking to a man or to men in general and expects the hearer or hearers to then perform what Adam did not, uh, instruct and lead his woman or women. We also see evidence several times in this portion that the man is to function as a priest or intercessor for his family. As their head, the man is their covering. Genesis 6, 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 7, 1, Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Or for you I have seen to be righteous. Uh, no, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the flood, or the water of the flood. And then seven thirteen On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Unlike Adam, Scripture clearly states that Noah was fully obedient. In Genesis 6, 22, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. A major point that we should consider is the relationship between the sins of the father and the blessings or protections over the family. While I certainly believe that blessings or curses affect the whole family, it's important to note that the guilt is incurred and borne primarily by the males. Over and over in scripture, we see that the actions of the father whether sinful or righteous, affect the sons to the third and fourth generation. Many times, uh, and many times it, it affects it much more. In our present case, the obedience of Noah directly affects the rest of the family and all mankind. But later in this portion, we'll see the sin of Ham affecting Canaan for many generations. And as a side note, consider if the incurred guilt is primarily borne by the males, then it is incumbent upon a wise woman to choose very carefully the man to whom she will belong. 
covenanting with and becoming one flesh with an unrighteous or unwise man is an exceedingly unwise thing to do. Adam was our first example. The sin of one man brought death to all of his progeny. Noah's actions saved the lives of his family. Ad, uh, Abraham's, uh, Abraham, Abraham's obedience brought life, blessings, and redemption for his family. The actions of Reuben, Levi, Shimon, or Reuben, Levi, and Simeon removed the headship from them, um, passing it, or, or the, the, the headship status of the tribe and passing it to Judah. Later, the heads of the Levite tribe restored their role by strapping on swords and standing with the father, their authority, instead of their brothers. We see that in Exodus chapter 32, I think. We will cover that when we get there. Headship and its adherence uh, to righteousness is extremely important, not just to this generation, but to many, many future generations. So men... You bear a heavy responsibility. A side note is just this last week in our uh, fellowship, home fellowship, Torah study, um, we had a discussion. And one of the things I did was I addressed the young men, the 17, 16, 17, 18, 20 year olds that we have here. And I said, gentlemen, you need to understand that that you have a responsibility, not just for yourselves and your future wife and uh, you know family, but you have a responsibility to the third and fourth and, and generations beyond. What you do can affect your great, great grandchildren, either positively or negatively. We see that over and over in Scripture. The sins of the fathers visited upon the sons or to, to the third and fourth generation. Same thing with blessings. Examples to follow later on in this study. Exodus 32. Oh, wait, I got it right here. Okay, Exodus 32, verse 25 and following. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. This is during the Golden Calf incident. Then Moshe stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp. And kill every man his brother, and every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moshe instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moshe said, Dedicate yourselves today to Yahweh, for every man has been uh, against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Over and over throughout Scripture, the actions of the head, whether for good or evil, directly affect the whole family, but are particularly borne by the sons. In the same vein, it's also clearly taught that a man is not bound by inherited curses. A man has the authority to change the direction of his family through confession, repentance, and obedience to the ways of the Lord. Consider these several examples. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 and following. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will rem remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. As well, and I will remember the land, for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. 
They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am Yahweh their Elohim, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Mitzrayim or out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their Elohim. I am Yahweh. We also read in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where Yahweh your Elohim has banished you. And you return to Yahweh your Elohim and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then Yahweh your Elohim will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, or technically the Hebrew says at the ends of the sky, and that's exactly the same phrase that Yeshua uses in Matthew chapter 24, somewhere around verse 30, um, where he talks about sending forth his angels to gather the elect from the ends of the sky. Okay. If your outcasts are at the ends of the sky, from there Yahweh your Elohim will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Yahweh your Elohim will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, Yahweh your Elohim will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And then there's a passage from Ezekiel 18. So we have, have multiple witnesses to this effect in terms of the sins of the fathers um, visited upon the sons, as well as the, the sons being able to repent from and turn away and walk in righteousness. Then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares Yahweh, uh, Adonai Yahweh, or the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So a time comes when everything uh, or, or those curses are broken or can be broken, and um, the sons can repent and turn and walk in the ways of the Father and receive the blessings that come with that. So men, if there are curses in your family, confess and repent, then walk in the ways of the king, leaving those things behind. The role of the man as head or king and priest for his family and future progeny is a major theme throughout Scripture. His action or inaction, obedience or disobedience, etc., deeply affect current and future generations. It's important to note that a man is not the sole responsible party. 
However, he is clearly the primary responsible person. There are a few important women highlighted in Scripture who turned the course of their families and even history through righteousness. Consider Tamar in Genesis 38, or Rahab in Joshua 2, or Ruth in Abigail, 1 Samuel, uh, or Ruth, the book of Ruth, and Abigail, 1 Samuel 25. In most cases, the women were making up for men who did not do what they were supposed to do. And I say this not to minimize their righteousness, but to highlight the men who were not fulfilling their roles properly. To return to Noah, God gave him a specific vision and calling, build an ark. The vision was not given to Noah's wife or to his sons. However, they were under his headship and were responsible to follow Noah and be obedient to his call. In their obedience, they were saved. Maybe it was wholehearted. Maybe it was not. We can surmise that they were not rebellious even when the world around them laughed. In this example, we see the mammoth importance of being obedient to the authority over us, whether men, women, or children. As the, as the days in the world around us grow darker, we must learn to walk in submission to the authority over us so that we will be counted worthy of salvation. Men, are you in full submission to the Messiah? Are you listening to his voice and willing to do as he instructs, even if it's contrary to the world? Women, are you looking to and trusting in the authority, the man who is your head? Children, are you following the head of your home? Ponder this carefully in light of Noah and his sons. Would the world and its acceptance have been important, have been more important than the very radical move of building a gigantic ark far inland? You think about it, it was the Disney World event of the day. No doubt Noah was laughed at because he was not interested in the culture of the day. Our portion details the flood and the dates and times involved. We'll not delve into or speculate on the times and seasons and possible relations to today. What we can simply say is that life in, uh, leading up to and on the ark was probably very busy, a lot of work, but the headship of Noah remains. God often gives a vision to one man and then expects him to lead his family and those others under his authority into completing it. Men, what vision has God given you? Have you articulated your vision to your household? Women, do you know your husband's vision or calling? Can you articulate it? Are you following? Remember, woman was made as a helper for the man. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. Noah performs the function and duties of priest for his family and all creation, demonstrating that the man is the mediator for his family before God. We will see this aspect of this change in the future 
um, as parts of the priestly function are transferred to the Levites and eventually the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. But an aspect of that remains today as each man is head of his home and intercessor for it. God then blesses Noah and his sons and covenants with them and their seed. Genesis 9, 1 and following. And God said, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is uh, with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the field and uh, every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Notice the covenant is with Noah, his sons and their seed. Every living creature that is with them is included, but their seed indicates the male progeny. Women are included in an indirect sense. They come from man, um, but but the direct covenant, as we will see in Sinai, is with the men who are then responsible for the women. This confirms the authority structure God established in the first Torah portion. And we'll see this confirmed over and over as we go through Scripture. Um, woman is a helper for man, and woman is the field or the garden into which man plants seed and then reaps the fruit of the womb. And so that is, uh, that is something that we will see as we go forward. The end of chapter 9 indicates that sin dwells in the heart of man and rebellion leads to consequences that affect future generations. Genesis 9, 18 and following. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Cain, uh, we say Canaan, Canaan, Canaan. Uh, these three were the sons of Noah, and, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward um, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. Verse 20 and 21 indicate a passage of time. Typically, it takes a few years to plant a vineyard and harvest enough grapes to make wine. And the winemaking itself demands a passage of time for fermentation, etc. Noah got drunk, and then something involving Ham happened. Scripture's not really clear. However, based on the fact that the son of Ham, Canaan, is cursed, and the nakedness of a man is his wife, uh, I'm inclined to believe that in Noah's drunkenness, Ham had relations with Noah's wife. The result in uh, 
in my opinion, is Canaan, explaining the curse on the son and not directly on Ham, though Ham sinned grievously. The sins of the father affect future generations. And uh, I have a side note here to see page 198, which is farther along in the book. But if you go, I believe that that points us to Leviticus chapter 18. And in Leviticus chapter 18, we find out that the nakedness of a man is his woman. Um, and so there are very explicit instructions about not looking upon the nakedness of uh, of a um, man, which would be upon his woman. Um, and a similar connection that we have with this right here that I don't mention in the text is uh, Reuben. Uh, later on in Scripture, we're going to read about how he loses his firstborn status uh, before Jacob by going up to... Bilhah's bed, the concubine, uh, or the one of the, I guess, the third wife of Jacob. And in doing so, he, he invokes a partial curse on himself, <clears throat> and, his, uh, and all of the Reubenites lost their status as firstborns, and really are, ha have limited mention in Scripture after that point. So the actions of the sons can have a beneficial or blessed effect, or they can have a cursing effect. Consider Shem and Japheth for receiving a blessing, some of which holds even today for their actions. Okay, so we'll we'll hold with an open hand what happened exactly, what transpired exactly between Noah and um, Ham and Canaan. Um, but I believe that Canaan was the progeny of Ham going into Noah's woman while Noah was. Um, was drunk. Of import in the scope of considering headship and patriarchy is the authority of the man to bless and curse those under his authority. Noah did both with long-term effect. How many men inadvertently curse their sons? How many men fail to intentionally bless their sons? Men, you need to be intentional. Train your sons correctly, then bless them. We will see many instances of fathers blessing sons as we proceed through Torah. This is a God-given power that a man has in his home. As the authority, the priest and king, you can call for blessings or curses. We must guard our tongues against curses, even unintended, and call forth blessings intentionally. When we get to Numbers 30, we will see that an additional authority a man has is the cancellation of vows that his wife or daughter makes if he does so in the day of his hearing it. So Noah displays both the power to bless and the power to curse, and we see the enduring effect of each through Abraham's descendants and the Canaanites. The beginning of this, the fulfillment of Noah's blessing and curse, is the genealogies of chapters 10 and 11 and the divergence of Shem and Ham. The major thought that men should come away with from this portion is a consideration of Noah's call and vision. Women should note that the silence in the text regarding Noah's wife and those of the sons does not mean they were not involved in helping Noah. In fact, quite the opposite. I would only expect a mention if they acted contrary to Noah. The simple fact is we see a family working together under the headship of Noah and his God-given vision for more than a hundred years despite certain ridicule. Let that sink in. 
a hundred years they worked together as a family doing something that was contrary to culture for the purpose of saving mankind. Wow. We continue in this segment with Lech, Lech Lecha, which is Genesis chapters 12, 1 through 17, 27. So this is the next in the in the Torah portion series. If you're uh, if you're listening to these one one portion at a time, um, you know you could wait and pick this up the following week or whatever. Um, but here we go. As with Noah, we see Elohim give a call and a vision to Abraham. Notice again, the vision is not given to Abram and Sarai or to Abram and Lot. It's given to Abram. And he then sets out with his household, including the persons which they had acquired in Haran and set out for the land of Canaan. Genesis 12, 1 and following. Now Yahweh said to Avram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so shall be, uh, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." So Avram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot, or Lot, Lot, went forward or went with him. Now Avram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Avram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions, and they had uh, that they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. A key additional note is that Avram was 75 years old. Many who are embarking on the Torah journey feel as if they are a bit older, and many married couples reading this, precisely because the fathers teaching them headship and patriarchy, have decades of marriage under their belt. Yet God dares to lead as he led Avram to go forth to a place I will show you. Maybe you do not know for certain the destination to which this journey is taking you, but you know the Father's calling you out in a way you have never experienced into a place you've never been. Maybe your friends and family think you're a little crazy, but we are in Abram's company, and there is none finer. We are not told how long or how challenging the journey was, but Avram eventually arrived in the Negev, the south of what is modern-day Israel, and there was a famine. Avram chose to go to Egypt to sojourn, and an interesting set of circumstances unfolds. Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Avram went down to Mitzrayim, to Egypt, to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Mitzrayim that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Mitzrayims, uh, when uh, some people say the Mitzrites, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his woman and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with you or go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Avram came into Mitzrayim that the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Peroz officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, 
He treated Avram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But Yahweh struck Perot and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Avram's woman. When Perot called Avram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your woman, your wife? Why did you not say, Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my woman? Now then, here is your woman. Take her and go. Perot commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his woman and all that belonged to him. This story really kind of jangles our Western cultural nerves. How could Avram act in this way, and why did Sarai go along with it? Scripture is not clear concerning why this story unfolds as it does, but we can see the obvious parallels to the future time of Israel's bondage to Perot, then being sent away laden with treasures. Nevertheless, there's some important lessons regarding headship and patriarchy on display here. As mentioned in our first portion in this series, there is no word for in Hebrew for wife. Technically, the Hebrew translated as wife is the same word as woman, isha. When the Hebrew says his woman, possessive, we understand it to mean wife. In fact, if you go back and reread the story and substitute the appropriate possessive term, his woman, which is the way that I read it, everywhere it says wife, you suddenly realize she was in his hand and he had the authority to do with her as he saw fit. The ladies, this is why it's so very important to ensure that you not join yourself to a man who is not pursuing righteousness. As we look at this story, we need to grapple with the very simple fact that Sarai belonged to Abraham or Abram. She was his possession. And I use those words intentionally. Um, Exodus 19, uh, yes, Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 refer to Israel as God's possession. Ephesians 5.32 speaks of the relationship between Messiah and the Kahal or the congregation as being imaged in marriage. Egalitarians and feminists recoil at the idea of the woman being a possession of the man, but scripture supports this point over and over in the relationship between man and woman. Understand this in no way allows man to abuse or misuse the treasured possession God has given him, but we must not minimize this aspect of the relationship either. As we saw in Breshit, the first portion commentary, woman was made for man. We see 1 Corinthians eleven eight, and it is to walk in submission to him. Ephesians 5, 22, Colossians 3, 18, Titus 2, 5, 1 Peter 3, 1. We may not like the way Avram chose to handle the situation, but we can say two things with 100% biblical certainty. Avram had the prerogative as the head to do what he did. And two, Sarai was obedient, leaving her protection and consequences up to the Almighty. 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6 say, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarai, uh, it says Sarah obeyed Abraham, Avraham, calling him Lord or Adon. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. 
It's fascinating that while Abram made a decision that went sour, even though he likely did so in good faith, God stepped in to protect both he and Sarai. I do not believe that we should test God with questionable decisions. We can rely on him when we're doing the best we can with what we have. Sarai was walking in obedience and following Abram as he did the best he knew how. God stepped in to protect her and honor Abram. A final note before moving on is that Sarai was related closely enough to Abram that he was telling the truth when Sarai referred to herself as his sister. Technically, she was a half-sister uh, or first uh, half-sister or first cousin. Some, uh, sometimes re uh, referenced as sister. You can see that in Genesis 20, 12. So continuing in our text with Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Mitzrayim, or Egypt, to the Negev, and he and his woman and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Avram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, or Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Avram called on the name of Yahweh. Now Lot, who went with Avram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Avram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Kanai, a Kanani and the Perizzi were dwelling in the land. So Avram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Hard decisions are one of the challenges and burdens that come with leadership or headship. Avram has, uh, has a general responsibility for his nephew, Lot, and a specific responsibility for his direct household. The father has definitely blessed both, though, as we will see, Lot's blessing is more a result of being close to Abram than his own wisdom. And herein is a separate lesson regarding aligning oneself with wise counsel and godly visionaries, something Lot eschews to his detriment. Abram does not ignore the growing family strife and recognizes that it is necessary to separate from Lot. <clears throat> he exhibits trust in God by giving Lot first choice and then not quibbling when Lot chooses what appears to be the easier option. Maybe Avram knew the direction Lot would go, but either way, Avram followed God and was blessed for it. Men, beware taking the easy way. It may not be as easy as you think. In chapter 14, Lot is captured in the feud between several kings of the valley, and Avram steps in to protect his extended family in spite of their separation. <clears throat> Verse 12 and following. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Avram the Ivrit, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amori, the brother of Eshkol, and brother of Aner, and these were the, the allies with Avram. When Avram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 
318 and went in pursuit as far as Don. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. At a later point, we'll discuss the particular importance of the role of firstborn son and his responsibility to the family. In going out to recover Lot and his household, Avram is performing one function of the firstborn for his extended family. Avram takes his own resources and risks them for the good of the larger family. In the next portion, we will again see him intercede on behalf of Lot. The point to understand here is simply that a patriarch carries much responsibility and does not shirk his duty when he is needed. True headship from a godly man will step into the tough situation, not sidestep or back away from it. Twice in this portion, Genesis 27 or 12, 7 and 13, 18, we have seen Avram build an altar. As mentioned in both Breshit and Noah, the, prime, uh, uh, the patriarch has a priestly and intercessory role for his household, something on prominent display throughout the remainder of this portion. Recall 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that Messiah is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Messiah. <clears throat> I bring this to mind so that we can reflect on Avram's primary focus. Over and over, we see his direction of gaze as being toward his authority, Elohim. Recall that Avram erred when he ceased to be obedient to God and instead hearkened to the voice of his woman. Avram is not making the mistake. I'm sorry, recall that Adam, Adam, erred when he ceased to be obedient to God and instead hearkened to the voice of his woman. Avram is not making the mistake of focusing in the wrong direction. Consistently, he's looking to the Almighty for instruction, direction, and assurance. And when given a task, he does so immediately. We do not really have the space to delve into this obedience and example as the priest of his household, but this portion is rich in this example before Melchizedek or Melchizedek. Obedience to the command to prepare a covenant ceremony in uh, chapter 15 and his obedience to circumcision of his whole house on the same day God said it to him. Uh, Genesis 17, 23. Our story gets very interesting in Genesis 16 as it touches on family structure, obedience, and authority. This is where we need to spend a bit of time discussing Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Avram's woman or wife, had borne him no son or child, no son. And he had uh, an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Avram, now behold, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Avram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Avram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Avram's woman, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Avram, as his wife, as his woman. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. 
And Sarai said to Avram, may the wrong done to me uh, be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May Yahweh judge between you and me. But Avram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Most of Christendom finds these verses very troubling. Avram is accused of everything from faithlessness to adultery because cultural filters and false doctrines cloud our understanding. We must be willing to seek out the truth and grapple with it regardless of where it leads. Before dealing directly with the passage, let us refute both the faithlessness and the adultery charges. First, the faithless charge. Recall the beginning of the previous chapter. Chapter 15, starting in verse 2. Avram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Avram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. God's promise to Abram was that the heir would be from your own body. In the time of Abram, it was legal and not uncommon for a man who had a barren woman to produce an heir through a surrogate. The heir, born upon the knees of the barren woman, was then considered the child of the barren woman. Avram understood that even in the circumstance of the surrogate would have an heir come forth from his own body, a fulfillment of God's promise. God's plans were bigger and included Sarai, but according to the written record of Scripture, that had not been articulated to Avram. Therefore, Sarai offered a solution to the riddle of Avram's heir by lawfully offering Hagar, her maid, as a woman for Avram. Our Western cultural lens finds this repugnant. However, God never condemns the action. Therefore, we should not either. He simply clarifies specifically that Isaac, Isaac, will come from Sarai and will be the one with whom God establishes his covenant. So Genesis 17, verse 15 and following, Then God said to Avram, As far as as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be uh, mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Avram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old, and will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear? And Avram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, Isaac, which means laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, for an for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Avraham. Notice God blesses Ishmael, 
But God specifies that Isaac, the son of the promise, will come from Sarah. Faithlessness is not the issue. Abraham simply moved faster than God, but God had all factored into the larger plan. See the conversation between the angel of the Lord and Hagar, Genesis 16, in the following passage. Note the blessings of God on Ishmael, as well as God's upholding of Sarah's authority over Hagar, verses 8 and 9. So Genesis 16, verse 7 and following. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, but the spring by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angels of the Lord said, no, the angel of the, the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. He will be a donkey, a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are an El who sees or a God who sees. And that was uh, Bereez Lahai Roy, I think. Um for she said, have I even remained, oh, there it is right there, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, or Be'er Lahai Roy. Um, behold, it's between Kadesh and Bered. So sir, uh, Hagar bore Avram a son, and Avram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Avram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So we now take up the common charge or misunderstanding of adultery on Abram's part with Hagar. In a later portion, the Torah will clearly define what adultery is. But for now, we will simply share the biblical definition. Okay, let me make a note here real quick. I've edited this thing a dozen times and still find little things that need to be fixed. So here we go. Um, the simple biblical definition of adultery. Adultery only occurs when a married woman or a woman that belongs to someone has relations with a man that is not her husband or master. Okay, Adultery only occurs when a married woman has relations with a man that is not her husband or master. Modern jurisprudence has redefined what was common knowledge even 150 years ago. Today, the average person believes that either spouse can commit adultery by having relations outside of a marriage. However, that is simply not biblical. Feel free to study this out. We will come back to a detailed study in a future portion. Because Hagar was unmarried, Abram could lawfully take her as his woman. The Hebrew text clearly says, 16.3, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her man Abram as his woman. Messianic rabbi uh, Yermiah ben Avram has a tactful 
footnote in Genesis, look again, a fresh translation with notes that says, there is no Hebrew word to designate English wife. There is only woman, which contextually makes sense to bring across into English here as wife. Essentially, he's saying that, um, that Hagar became Abram's wife. Until we can delve into adultery in more detail, consider the following from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Clearly, in the list. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yet Abraham is listed in Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, in glowing terms as a man approved by God. Therefore, if Abraham will inherit the kingdom, we cannot have, uh, he cannot have been an adulterer, period. Now, the astute student would ask, well, what about David? He's listed in Hebrews 11 and he committed adultery. And actually, the case of David would strengthen the assertions already made. First, we know that David had at least eight named wives. See 1 Samuel 18, 27, 2 Samuel 5, 13 to 16, and 1 Chronicles 3, 1 through 9, and 10 concubines. But God only addresses the sin with Bathsheba because she was married when David took her. Secondly, we know that God in his rebuke through Nathan the prophet actually get, takes credit for having given the wives to David when he says, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. First Samuel, or 2 Samuel 12, 8. Third, and most importantly, we know David repented for his sin of taking a married woman and having Uriah, her master, killed. The clear witness of Scripture is that Abram's taking of Hagar was neither faithless nor sin. As patriarch and head of the household, he had the authority to take additional wives or concubines, something he apparently did more than a couple times, as we will see in future portions. This idea jangles Western egalitarian feminist nerves, but we must understand Scripture as it is written and allow it to mold our thinking. So here's a good rule. Do not condemn what God allows and do not allow what God condemns. Think about that. Do not condemn what God allows and do not allow what God condemns. Armed with a very basic understanding of Abram and Sarai's actions regarding the taking of Hagar as Abram's woman, we can now go back and look at it with a bit of clarity and understand a couple things regarding headship and family dynamics. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Avram, Now behold, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. And I don't know if I hit this in a minute or not, but notice, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. It's God who opens and closes the womb. So God's the one here who uh, sets up this set of circumstances, as we will see with Rachel and Jacob a little bit later on. We'll highlight this as well. 
but continuing, please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Avram listened to the voice of Sarai, and Avram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Avram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Avram as his wife, as his woman. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Avram said, uh, Sarai said to Avram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May Yahweh judge between you and me. But Avram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Sarai asks, Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children. Technically, the Hebrew says, be built up through her. Clearly, she is expecting to be the mother and the child will be hers. However, the text indicates that after Hagar had conceived, she despised Sarai. The wrong done to Sarai in Hagar's despising her, not Abram's taking of Hagar. What Hagar failed to remember is that even as Abram's woman, she was still under the authority of Sarai, no doubt a complicated situation. Rabbi Avram, uh, previously cited, translates 16.4 in this way with the following footnote. So he came to Hagar, and she became pregnant by him. When she noticed that she was pregnant, her mistress became low in her eyes. And the word low here, kalal, means to be light, as in not heavy or easily disrespected. Now, I added that easily disrespected. This is the same word Hashem uses to inform Avram, those who treat you lightly, as in of little consequence, I will curse. Perhaps the Torah's use of this word regarding Hagar's attitude is a predictor of her and her son's later banishment. It also plays in Hagar's ingratitude that having been elevated from the level of servant to wife at her own mistress' doing, she later held Sarai in low esteem. This injustice speaks volumes of her character. Perhaps if Hagar had simply understood that she was a legitimate wife in submission to Sarai and Ishmael was a legitimate son, albeit not the possessor of the promise, things would have worked out differently. But as Rabbi Avram indicates, her character is a real problem that Abram has to deal with. Abram gives his authorities to Sarai to set Hagar straight, to which Hagar responds by fleeing. We note next that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, tells Hagar to return and submit. Hagar returns, but as we will see in the next portion, her lack of submission is an issue that leads to being put out from under the protection of Avraham. God institutes authority and God upholds authority. Trying to run around one's head or authority to get a hearing with the Almighty is a work in futility. As we will see in many future passages, God does not undermine authority structure where his appointee is walking righteously or doing his bidding. This portion significantly challenges our thoughts on a number of matters, but we must be very careful to let the word of God define our attitude and understanding, not cultural norms or man-made doctrine. And so this is the end of 
Parsha Lech Lecha, or my commentary, my notes on it with regards to headship and authority structure. And we will take it up again in the next, uh, the next segment in this series. Shalom.